Welcome to Hormone Health Podcast, brought to you by Georgia Hartman and Chloe Sheehan. This podcast is an extension of Hormone Health Studio, which is our naturopathic clinic based here in Newcastle and online. We're just two naturopaths who love a laugh, coffee, croissants, and conversations about real people with real health concerns. Nothing's off limits. We're here to educate you on what's happening in your body, share emerging research, and debunk buried health misconceptions. So sit back and let us do the talking. Chloe, in today's episode, we are interviewing Melanie, the midwife, which I am so excited about because we're talking all about VBACs, vaginal birth after cesarean. Melanie shares such fascinating fascinating, um, stuff on social media. People might recognize her on Instagram as Melanie, the midwife. uh, But she's got some... She's a home birth midwife. Yes, which... I don't know, I just feel like it's my thing, you know? I think if I were to become a midwife, I'd be a home birth midwife. Actually, after talking to her, I'm like, maybe I should study midwifery. Well, I should do. I know, but I just don't have the energy. I don't know. Could you imagine doing another degree? Like, I want to one day, but I think in this phase of my life, I'm tired. I don't think I'm actually that good seeing blood. Like, I've never actually been that good, and it only sort of cemented that for me again. Are you going to talk about your toe? Yeah. (laughs) When was it? Several days ago. The smallest amount of blood. And I was on the No. I was on the phone to Will, and he was away in Singapore, so we were trying to, like, make our timings and and catch that five minutes of when he was free. And the rug got caught under the computer chair, and I tried to fix it. But I guess, like, being pregnant, I don't know, like, maybe my center of gravity's off. I weigh more. I landed straight down on my toe. So did you try to kick it? Yeah, and my toe got caught underneath the computer chair. And it was, like, immediately throbbing pain, 12 out of 10 pain. And I started sweating. I went pale. I had to get on my hands and knees and crawl over to that chair. And, yeah, I was like, how am I supposed to give birth? Hang on. And then you passed out. For, like, one second. And then you vomited. Yeah. And in the process of vomiting and and that projection of pressure, you wet yourself. Oh, I wasn't going to (laughs) say There we go. I mean, I've got the photo. So if anyone just DM, send an email, I'm happy to share. You're lucky you're wearing a linen dress. It was a full process. It was actually pathetic, like thinking about the series of events. But um, I was like, I just stubbed my toe and I've managed to pass out, vomit and wee myself. Gosh. Glamorous. Pregnancy is, isn't it? Like, it's just kind of. I'm I'm actually worried I don't have a pelvic floor. (laughs) No, I think those series of events probably warranted you wetting yourself. Um, yeah. Lucky you had spare undies. Is this why you carry spare undies? Just because you never know. Who doesn't? I Look, I personally don't carry really? spare undies. I mean, I feel like I did when I was toilet training when I was three or four. And in my preschool backpack, mum would put spare undies. Um, but yeah. no. <laughs> I always Not do. Now. I just thought it was normal that you just carry a spare pair of undies in your like, you main bag. Know. You never know. You would. I mean, what statistically, what's the chances of a person <laughs> wedding themselves on know. a You given just want to be prepared. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, well, I'm not going to go free lab. 
<laughs> Which is the opposite of free balls, if anyone doesn't realise. But I've actually not heard that before. Really? I just no. made it up. Oh, did you? Um, I was like, you've said that with such conviction that I feel like this is a movement. By the way, anything embarrassing you do, I'm going to tell everyone. Yeah, sorry. I thought that when you you know started telling your toe story that you would give all the details. I didn't realise that you would sugarcoat it. Anyway. <laughs> Today's podcast is a really good one for anybody who has previously had a cesarean and are considering vaginal birth after their cesarean. Yeah. Um, we asked Mel a million and one questions, so hopefully the questions that you wanted. But yeah, let's, let's do it. Dr. Melanie Jackson has been a private midwife for over 15 years. She has a PhD on the topic of home birth and free birth and is one of the hosts of the Great Rebellion, uh, the Great Birth Rebellion podcast. Mel also men- mentors other midwives into private practice within her formal mentorship group and is the online host of the Assembly of Rebellious Midwives, which is an online learning platform and community. And later this year in August 2024, Mel is running the Convergence of Rebellious Midwives Conference, which I'm sure we will hear more about later. And today we are talking to Mel all about VBACs, vaginal birth after cesarean. Welcome, Mel. Thanks, Guy. Thanks for having me. Uh, We feel very lucky to have (laughs) you on the podcast. Before we jump in, we'd love to know, how did you get into midwifery? Tell us a bit about your journey. Okay. I, and I'm not sure if you know this about me already, but my first degree was naturopathy. Oh. Yes. I didn't know that. Yes, I know. So I finished school, went straight into naturopathy because I'd been raised by a mother who was into all kinds of herbal medicine and concoctions and herbs and nutrition. So we'd been raised like that. And so I went in and studied naturopathy and I was working as a naturopath and I thought, oh, you know, I'd really love to specialize in women and babies. But I didn't really know, I didn't have children myself at that time. I didn't know what else I should study in order to help bolster my understanding of the needs of women and babies. And so I, in my journey, came across midwifery as as a qualification that kind of had something to do with women and babies. And then as I started reading and learning about midwifery, a friend of mine invited me to her home birth. And so I thought, ooh, if I... If I'm going to go to a home birth, I really better read lots of things and get an understanding of what I'm supposed to do there because I didn't have any experience in birth. And I picked up a book by Ina May Gaskin called Spiritual Midwifery Mm -hmm. and read that cover to cover multiple times while on the train to my, I decided I was going to do midwifery during that time, but because I already had a Bachelor of Naturopathy and Health Science, I decided to do a master's of nursing and then postgraduate midwifery. So I spent my entire nursing degree learning about midwifery and reading all the midwifery books in the library. I also happened to do very well as a nurse, like in my studies, but never intended on working as a nurse. So you knew your trajectory was straight to midwifery. Absolutely. And I and you know, the philosophies are very different. As you'd know, naturopathy is a wellness philosophy nursing was this illness philosophy and I was just so confused all the time that I didn't even understand what I was supposed to do as a nurse but midwifery is a wellness philosophy very similar you're looking after well people like 
in in naturopathy we're working with the body and understanding it in that way rather than seeing it as an illness state and so uh, having read spiritual midwifery I was like well this just makes total sense that this is how we should be having babies having babies at home having babies without intervention uh, and then I was just fixated on becoming a midwife and becoming a home birth midwife and so I kind of it, it sprung out of a desire to work with women and babies as a naturopath and for a little while I worked as a naturopath and as a midwife but very quickly midwifery just took over and I couldn't maintain both qualifications in terms of the CPD and the insurance and the oh, business. you'd be spending every day on webinars. And- <laughs> yes, it became that way where I was just flipping from one to the other in terms of trying to maintain them. So I picked midwifery, but I still use a lot of my naturopathic knowledge to help my clients. Uh, so that's that's how I came to midwifery. Wow, really interesting. That is interesting. Yeah, one of our naturopaths, Asha, is actually a midwife as well and is combining the two. And we often talk about how it's, I don't know, how midwifery should be. Like you have an understanding of how the body works and how to support the mother in terms of nourishment and nutrition and, yeah, particular herbs that can be quite useful. So I can imagine that you use the two, you know, they're intertwined in daily practice. It makes total sense. Yeah, the philosophies are the same in terms mm. of natural thing and midwifery. They align in a sense that you're, you, it's about nourishing the body and looking after the women to enhance their health. That's not the philosophy of medi- medicine at a well person, a relatively well person, uh, in response to things that come up in pregnancy. So, yeah, I think it's a great combination. And also I guess the another similarity as well is that in naturopathy, um, it's really about that rapport building. We have that hour at least with somebody and same sort of midwifery sort of, sorry, and um, birth outcomes. It's really about that continuation of care or feeling as though that birthing mother is supported. Yeah, absolutely. And so you have children yourself, Mel. Can I ask about your own birthing experiences and how they either differed depending on um, your education or your own experience with birth and, and seeing other births? Yeah. So I have two children, mm-hmm. 11-year-old and a 7-year-old, and they were both born at home and I was already a midwife when I when I gave birth. So I was a midwife when I was 24 and my first baby was born when I was 28. And he, I had an innate sense that he was going to be born preterm my mum had preterm babies and I just felt like maybe that's how this pregnancy was going. And my mantra to him every day was, don't break your waters too early because you're going to be born at home. You need to basically make it to the point where it's still safe for you to be born at home. So I wasn't very surprised when I went into labour at at 36 weeks. Mm. And then I recall contacting my midwife and saying, hey, I'm 36 weeks, I'm pretty sure I'm in labour, I'm still planning on having this baby at home. So that's considered early preterm, 36 weeks. You know, 37, 38 weeks is more full term. So I knew that this was kind of on the fringes of what would be acceptable for a home birth, but felt very strongly that he would be fine. And even though there was a very long labour, and I could tell you the whole story, it would would take me the whole podcast, but it was a long labour 
had an acupuncturist come and help bring things along. And on day two, he was born beautifully well. Uh, he fed all of the things that can concern people about preterm babies didn't happen. But I wonder if that's because I was so prepared for a preterm baby. We did like days and weeks and weeks of of constant skin to skin with him we did what's called kangaroo care where they basically stay with you in a little pouch for the whole time and I fed him constantly and he gained weight and he stayed warm and there was no issues so that was baby number one and I had him while I was writing my PhD birthing outside the system PhD which interestingly he was my first baby and would have been considered outside the system in lots of ways because he was preterm. And, you know, I hadn't had any of the gestational diabetes screening or a GBS swab or anything that the hospital would be expecting me to have had if I was giving birth there. So that was an interesting experience because I felt so strongly that I wasn't going to go to hospital even after the long labour. And he was born preterm and he was 2.3 kilos, which is tiny in baby language. And I remember my midwife saying to me, you know, I'm obliged to let you know that that these babies are usually spent sent to special care nursery because he's so little. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And I said, yeah, I know. I said, just write down that I've declined that opportunity. Thank you. Like I think she was kind of going through the motions of like, so Mel, you understand. I was like, yes, thank you. Write that down that I declined. She's like, okay. okay. She'd know you well by this point, I'm sure. <laughs> she was very aware of my plans and um, I did check in with her of like, how do you feel about me doing this at home given that he's so little? And she was so good. She just said, if this is what you need to do, I'll come with you and do that. Um, yeah, so Again, I'm not advocating that everybody do that. I had a, a unique skill set to understand what he needed. Uh, but certainly that was my first baby. My second was the complete opposite. So I assumed again that I would have an early baby and was comfortable and prepared for that. I was prepared that I could have another very long labor. And I sort of thought if I need to do that, then I will do it again. But it would be great if it wasn't that long. So I ended up staying pregnant with my second baby till I was 40 weeks and two days. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Four weeks of my life. I bet. Especially considering that you would have had in your head it could have been another 36 again. Yes. Yeah. And my midwife was going away at the time that I was 41 weeks. And when I booked her, she said, you know, I'm going away on this date. And I said, oh, gosh, I will have had my baby. <laughs> so don't worry about it. <laughs> um so yeah 40 weeks and two days and I, I went into labor after just doing all kinds of fun things all weekend just kind of we went out for lunch and we did a bushwalk and I was kind of more frustrated that I just kind of was trying to distract myself the fact that I was still pregnant and that evening I started getting contractions over dinner and luckily my mum who was coming to support my son he was going to stay at the house while I was birthing and I just asked if she would come and be with him, you know, just to look after him. And so she happened to be there for dinner, which was great, and I just kind of whispered to her, hey, I'm not sure if I'm actually going to go into labour, but I feel like maybe contractions have started. Can you stay and, you know, do bedtime with Charlie in case things heat up? And I remember 
we had dinner and by the time it was time to start putting Charlie to bed at about seven, so this was about six, with, I felt like contraction started. I was already kind of holding onto the door frame and sort of <laughs> stopping talking during the labour, like during a contraction and trying to explain to her where all these pyjamas are and what to do next. And I, and I just remember sort of saying, just look, just figure it out. And I went into my room to, to go into labour. I texted my sister at 8 p.m. to say, oh, I think maybe, I think maybe labour has started, just heads up. She wasn't coming, but I wanted to let her know. And then it progressed pretty quickly from there. Um, by the time Charlie was still awake, and I had I was down on the ground on hands and knees moaning through contractions by then. He'd still, it was enough time that he hadn't gone to bed yet. And they quickly filled the pool. I was reluctant to call my midwives because of how long the last labor was. I didn't mm. want to unduly like unduly call them and waste their time again. I feel like last time I wasted all their days of their time because of how long it took. Um, so I was kind of putting that off and my husband just finally made the decision and he called them because I was like, no, no, wait a bit longer. And I think he recognised how strong things were. So the midwives arrived around 9.30 and Frida was born at 10.30. Um, oh. The best birth ever. Yeah. Oh. Like I pushed Charlie out. It took ages to push him out my first birth, like two and a half hours. And it was just hard work, really hard work. With Frida, it just like... She started coming down. It's my favourite part of the whole thing. I'd been contracting and they were really strong and they were coming really close together. And I remember looking at the clock and I said to my husband, I'm going to be back in bed by 11 p.m. I'm not, <laughs> that's it. I like mentally went, that's it. We're done with this. We're going to bed at 11, just so everybody knows. And um, she started coming down and I felt my body physiologically pushing her out the urge was really strong and at that point because I'm a midwife I I put my finger in my vagina to sort of feel what if I could feel her and I could feel her head the top of her head and I kind of indicated to my midwife like how far up I could feel it just kind of went like this and she you know showed her where my up to where my finger went in and she went oh that's great Mel and then I had the next contraction and felt more pushing down and so kind of checked again and and I went oh like just the tip of my finger was was in and I could so she'd moved down quite quickly and then I felt the absolute stretch that happens when there's a baby mm. coming through your vagina and I remember saying to myself, oh, that's not that bad. Like I just thought, oh, that's it. I'm like, I'm, it's just a stretch. It's just a stretch. And I had the same feeling with my first baby. I remember thinking, oh, it's just a stretch. I wouldn't describe it as painful, the stretch. Were you in the water at this time? I was in the pool, yes. Yeah, okay. I didn't have Charlie. My first, I didn't have him in water just because it was such a long pushing phase. He was preterm mm. and, yeah, so, but Frida was full term. I was in the pool. There was a frantic rush to fill the pool and I was like, I need to get in. <laughs> Charlie's labour was a bit boring and um, not incredibly painful because, but Frida's was just so um, intense. Strong, intense. Yeah. yeah. 
I, I don't want to call it pain. Like it was definitely sore. I remember saying, oh, my gosh, that hurts. But um, completely manageable. And birth is absolutely completely manageable if you have what the support that you need. Mm. And so I just remember saying, oh, gosh, we're having another traction. Wow, they're really coming close. Like just kind of observing what was happening rather than feeling overcome by it. And then I started hysterically laughing. Oh, like, gosh. I know, full stretch, <laughs> baby full stretch. And I remember having this thought of, oh, my gosh, finally this kid is leaving my body. Like yeah. we've done the pregnancy, the pregnancy is over, we're at full stretch, like it's minutes away. And I just started hysterically laughing like a mad woman. And I remember thinking to myself, maybe you should tone this down. And then immediately telling myself, no, you need, you're amongst friends here. You need to let out whatever it is you want to do. So I let myself hysterically laugh. And I heard one of the midwives whisper to the other one, what is she doing? <laughs> and I went, I'm so happy. Or I think I said, I'm so elated. Like I just felt absolute utter bliss. And um, so she came out. So her head came out. Uh, and in the next contraction, her body did not emerge. I was not scared. I just didn't feel like I did. Like a, at the next contraction, I felt the contraction come but I didn't feel an urge to push her out. Mm. And I was like, oh, she's not coming. I, she's not going to come with this contraction. I couldn't say that to the midwife. I just said, get her out, <laughs> get her out. And um, so she, I'm pretty sure she reached her hand in and just released her shoulder or something. Um, that was completely fine with me. I, at that point, thought, Oh, I didn't. I didn't feel like she was going to come with that contraction. Um, so yeah, she just offered a bit of an assistance with that. Um, I didn't tear, which is amazing considering there was a baby and a hand in there. Mm. Um, and yeah, that was Frida. And it's incredible. Yes, and it was just so much fun. And I um and I was stepping out of the pool in order to have the placenta. So that my placenta's still in and. Frida's on my chest and the cord's still all attached. And I said to my husband, oh, my gosh, I can't wait to do that again. And he said, what do you mean again? I was like, you know, the next baby. And he chose this moment in time to tell me, like, there are no more babies. That was it. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, pop the the bubble. Enjoy this oxytocin hit because it's going to end real soon. (laughs) Come back to reality. That's it. You're never doing that again. And I said to him, excuse me, this placenta is still inside. Can we have a talk about this later? (laughs) Um, So I was kind of like I would give birth any day. I really loved that birth, possibly because I felt like I'd waited an entire month for it. But um, that's my birth I've nut. never heard somebody say that they were laughing, but it's it's the same as like, you know, if you hear bad news or you kick your toe, everyone has a different response, whether that be like, oh, forget it or shake it off or scream or yell or laugh. And I think like that's so interesting that that was a response from you because yeah. it's so completely normal, but you just yeah. don't hear it. Yeah, you. I mean, we're hormonally wired to feel bliss in that state. 
during labor, it's governed by oxytocin, which is the love hormone. You're supposed to be completely blissed out and high on endorphins. But I think that a lot of women are surrounded by fear in their birth and that uh, dampens that entire hormonal (laughs) situation. And so most women are not encouraged to feel bliss or they feel so scared and on high alert that they can't tap in to the blissful part of birth. And women are absolutely lied to about the pain and sensation of labour. They're told it's really strong and it's super painful and so we've got all these drugs for you so that you can take the pain away from you because you can't manage it. Mm. The truth is, is that we are so strong and powerful that we can absolutely deal with the pain of labour and the pain of labour is only heightened if you feel unsafe and you're with people that you don't know in a place that can't properly support you. So if you surround yourself with people that love you, that know you, that you trust, and you're in a place where you feel safe, your sensation and thoughts about labour are going to be completely different. So I think for my birth, I just ben- benefited from the absence of fear Uh, the fact that I was comfortable and I felt safe with the people who were there, that I was given the opportunity to experience the bliss of labour. And that's how women are supposed to have at least some element of bliss because it's oxytocin. That's what causes us to contract and that crosses the blood-brain barrier. So physiological birth has a massive bliss element that is not shared with women, I think. Yeah. Yeah. No, yes. absolutely, absolutely. So can we talk a bit about VBACs? Can you explain what a VBAC is and, and why it's important for, it's an important topic for expecting mothers? Yes, so VBAC. So, um, yeah, I'm a home birth midwife, so I, I do attend VBACs. Women do come to me for VBACs and I do do them at home. But a VBAC is a vaginal birth after cesarean. Some people will call it NBAC, like next birth after cesarean, or HBAC, home birth after cesarean. There are a few different terms, but it basically describes the plan to attempt a vaginal birth in your pregnancy after having had a previous cesarean birth. And it's an important topic because here in Australia, uh, the cesarean section rate is 38%. And that's not the fault of women's bodies. That's the fault of our maternity care system and it's set and how it's set up and the beliefs of care providers that that many women should need a cesarean section. But the main driver for repeat cesarean section is previous cesarean section. So if you've got 38% of the population having a cesarean section, then in the current system they're going to get another cesarean section and so VBAC is important because everything around us tells us that you know the research and needs tells us that we need to reduce this cesarean section rate this is an unsustainable way of having babies it's expensive it's risky it you know there's all kinds of things that we could avoid for this world if we encourage women to have vaginal births so if we don't start talking about VBACs and increasing the acceptability of it and reducing people's fear of it, then we're never going to reverse the upward trend because women who have had cesareans are just going to keep having cesareans and then we're not going to reduce the first-time cesarean 
um, rates. Now, there are a number of, there is a percentage of women who should have their babies by cesarean section. And it's an important uh, intervention that can absolutely save lives, but not 38%. That's, mm-hmm. yeah, over the That's top. quite a high statistic. And it, I'm even thinking now, as you're saying this, thinking about um, there is a lot more instances of um, couples conceiving via, say, IVF. And then they're at a different, you know, usually under the care of an obstetrician who is recommending that they don't go beyond a certain week and then, you know, starts that trend of intervention. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And and the thing that happens is is public hospitals have a much lower rate of cesarean section, so it's more like 25%, whereas private hospitals, some obstetricians have got 70% cesarean section rates. So for those women who start their pregnancy journeys in a you know in a way that involves a lot of care providers and potentially a lot of interventions uh, and some risk factors and if they get shuffled then into obstetric care they've already increased their chances of a cesarean section so yes it's it's all about where you start your journey which care provider you have and where you choose to have them it's probably not your body that's you know that where there's a problem there yes, are fascinating problems. I remember when I had my uh, cesarean with my second <clears throat> pardon me and on the board of you know had everyone's surgeries booked or something whatever that board is at the hospital I was the only emergency cesarean that day the rest were all elective cesareans and I just thought this is fascinating you know obviously there's a million reasons why someone might have a cesarean section but I just I was shocked I was like, how could I possibly be the only one? Right. Yeah, and I think, you know, sometimes emergencies happen and it's amazing that we can have a cesarean section where without one somebody would have come off much worse, but there's not very many reasons for an elective cesarean section where that's absolutely going to be the better outcome for the women and the baby. But Yes, I mean, that's the crux of the problem. It's just we have a high cesarean section rate. And Mm -hmm. so now we need to somehow curb that because most people have acknowledged that that's too high. But we will never get on top of that or reduce it if we don't learn about vaginal birth after cesarean. And what sort of things would make somebody a good candidate for a VBAC? Or is there anything where, you know, you'd, might say, okay, maybe it would be better if you had a repeat cesarean or? Yeah. So, I mean, a good candidate is any woman who wants to have a vaginal birth. Good answer. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And that she's in a facility that favours VBAC over repeat cesarean section. Because Because not all do or? Well, if you look at the stats, they're pretty dire. Uh, A good statistic for some hospitals is about 17% of people planning a VBAC will actually have one. Mm. Whereas if you look at women who are planning a VBAC at home, the stats are over 85%. And Mel, you said you didn't have stats. Um, yeah. But I know it's like, it's funny though, when you start talking about something you're passionate in, it's like, how do they, where do these numbers live in the head? It's like, they're somewhere. Because like, before we started the podcast, Mel was like, just warning you, I've come off a birth and I've done all of these things today. So no, yeah, it, once it, yeah. 
Yeah, I these things. <laughs> I'm unprepared with stats, sorry, because I couldn't refresh them. But that, yeah, these are the ones, you know, we have much better success at home then. Mm. So I think, no, not all hospitals will or offer VBAC or are comfortable with VBAC. So if that's your plan, I think you really need to quiz that facility about uh, what is your VBAC rate? How many women who actually plan to have cesarean have vaginal births after cesareans actually have vaginal births after cesareans? Mm. But the bigger question is, is how many women with a previous cesarean section attempt a vaginal birth? Because what often happens is, is they're counselled out of that option. So even if a hospital has an 85% success rate in their VBAC stats, if they say, oh, yeah, 85% of women who plan to have a VBAC in our hospital actually have a vaginal birth, the next question is, but how many women opted for a vaginal birth? There might have only been 10 Mm. because the other 100 were counselled to have a repeat cesarean section. And why do you think that is? um, I think it's easier on the hospital time-wise because hospitals are time poor and they're frightened of everything. And so uh, doing surgery that's structured, that can be scheduled, where the woman is uh, able to be controlled in a sense that, you know, something's been done to her body instead of them waiting for her body to do what they want it to do. Uh, it, it creates a lot more certainty for staff, but it creates a lot more uncertainty for the woman. So she's worse off. The hospital system is better off. If if every single person who's had a previous cesarean section um, opts to have a repeat cesarean section, that's amazing for scheduling. And we've got to remember that a lot of clinicians in a hospital are surgeons. Uh, you've got the midwives who are beautiful at um, helping women with birth, but if it comes to an intervention or if they need a cesarean section or something, that's done by a surgeon. And so I think it's, I forgot the original question you asked because I just went when Also off. why they would be cancelled out. Oh, yeah. I think it's just fear of the hospital uh, and then also lack of understanding about VBAC. And and a lot of women maybe don't question the recommendation. So if you're with a clinician who says, I think you should have another cesarean section, some women might just go, okay, well, you, you are the person I've hired or you know best, so mm. I think that's what I'll do. And then their story will be, oh, yeah, they told me I had to have a repeat cesarean section, so that's why I had a cesarean section this time. But I think there's a lot of misinformation about VBAC, which is fueling the fear. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of fear. Like th- there's a lot of fear in women, and maybe I'm just speaking from personal experience, but um, that have had, so I had a home birth with my first and I had an emergency um, cesarean with my second, and now that I'm pregnant again, I'm like a little nervous because I've now experienced both ends of the spectrum and I know which one I would prefer not to have. And I'm nervous that it might happen again. And so you think, okay, well, to override that fear, do I just book something in? You know, do I just accept that that might be the birth and just um, go with it? But, yeah, I think I think there's a lot of fear. And I think one of the biggest questions is, well, how do we address these concerns and fears that women have to get them into a better 
space mentally, sure, physically, but mentally heading into birth. Yeah. So a really big thing with women planning VBAC is then they start to doubt their bodies. Mm. Oh, this happened last time, so maybe it'll happen this time. So I think in order to relieve fears, women will make a choice. So, And this was part of my PhD research as well. Women will always choose what they believe is going to be best and safest for them and their babies. Some For some women, the experience, the trauma of having a cesarean section or having an emergency at birth will lead them to want to claw back control over their birth experience by planning a repeat cesarean section. Some mm-hmm. women really like the element of being able to choose their care provider and the time and the day and it's it's a known procedure so they were like well I had a cesarean last time so I know what to expect this time and so this can be a coping strategy to plan a repeat cesarean section to alleviate their fears and concerns about not being in control again this time or potentially having another complication where they might need to labor and then also end up in a cesarean section. And so the the decisions are driven by not wanting to repeat the thing that happened last time and to get back some control. So for some women, that will lead them to repeat cesarean section. For others, it would lead them to things like a home birth where where we go, right, you increase your chances of a vaginal birth by having continuity of care with a known midwife or, or obstetrician where that clinician is on board with your intentions for your birth rather than trying to direct you in the way that they think you should go. So it's all well and good if you book an obstetrician that you know if their repeat cesarean section rate for previous cesarean section is 99%, chances are that's what you're going to get because that's what your practitioner wants you to have. And so... Um, yeah, so I think a trusted care provider who's on your page yeah. is going to journey with you. So it's not about confronting the fear in one appointment and going, oh, good, that's gone. <laughs> um, glad that would be nice, you. though. I know. <laughs> but, you know, this, this is, sometimes these can, it can be a traumatic experience. Sometimes it's just a disappointing experience and you want to do everything you can to to reverse that. And so... It's about finding a trusted care provider and working through with them. Mm. And it can be about asking really direct questions of your care provider, like what will you do if this happens? Mm. And really exploring the things that you might be scared about and finding out what they're going to do and understanding the scenarios can be a way of processing and working through fears. But it definitely needs to be done with a trusted care provider, hopefully one that you can have through your whole pregnancy, birth and afterwards. Yeah, I think that's such such great information. And some people just don't know where to look for that information or they're just, you know, for them it's like, okay, this is what somebody of power has told me to do and has given me that, well, even though, you know, it might be 99% fine, there could be that 1%. Could you elaborate on in terms of specific risks or any complications associated with VBACs that um, expecting mothers could be aware of yeah so when we talk about risks of VBAC I think we also need to talk about risks of a repeat cesarean section and so you know doctors often say oh your risk of rupture is you know one percent it's less than that but let's just hypothetically you know you could you, your risk of rupture is one percent 
go, okay, that's good information. Um, but what are the risks if I have a repeat cesarean section? It's so all how it's been. It's like it's all how it's said to you. Delivered, yeah. Yeah, it's all about the delivery because it's very rarely diplomatic like that or yeah. balanced. Yes, like so you know if somebody says to you, you know, it's risky to have a vaginal birth after cesarean section, that gives you a really clear idea of where their head is at and what where they're coming at with how they're going to advise you. But if you sat in front of your midwife or obstetrician or somebody and they said, okay, let's talk about the risks of a second cesarean section for you. What are the risks of that? So it's major surgery. Um, there's extra blood loss with with repeats with cesarean sections. Every time you have a cesarean section, you increase scar tissue and that possibly complicates the surrounding organs, including your bladder. Your uh, risk of infection is something like 30%. When you have a cesarean section, you'll have antibiotics. You'll have a wound to recover from. There's another scar on your uterus now. So how many babies do you want to have? Because you can't have endless cesarean sections. Mm. So if you plan on having five babies, uh, then you increase your risk every single time you have a cesarean section. So the risk is just displaced. It's just pushed further up in your journey. Uh, there's so many risks to surgery that are not mentioned and everybody focuses on this less than 1% risk of uterine rupture if you attempt a VBAC. Mm. So when people say, oh, do you think I'm a good candidate for VBAC? I'm like, unless your placenta is actually deeply embedded in your uterine scar or you have placenta previa or some other complication that would actually prevent you from a vaginal birth, I think everybody should attempt a VBAC. Because we have amazing medical facilities. Obviously, this relies on where you're located in the country because not everywhere is amazing or accessible. But the, the risks of VBAC are so small compared to the risks of repeat cesarean section that, that I feel like everyone should be offered the opportunity at VBAC. And that's certainly what the research says. In fact, the research also says that for women who are planning second or third having a vaginal birth after second or third cesarean sections and so it's it's not a question of who's appropriate to have uh you know a vaginal birth after cesarean section it's who can absolutely not have a vaginal birth whether or not it was after a cesarean or not they have to have cesareans thank you for amazing cesareans for these people the rest i think should be supported to have a VBAC. And so, and that's what the research is saying now. It's saying every woman should have the opportunity, obviously precluding certain risk factors. Um, so there's the risk of uterine rupture, but it's not dissimilar to the risk. If you're getting induced, you have a risk of uterine rupture. They don't tell you that, but they will induce 40% of women. They all have a risk of uterine rupture. That's not on the list of possible complications if you're induced. Wow. Uh, but that's fine. They'll do that every single day. But then when a woman walks in for a VBAC, they're like, oh, could have a uterine rupture. <laughs> like, yeah, fascinating. Right. And so um, they've disproven the thought that women who have VBACs are likely to bleed more. That's um, The stats don't support that. Uh, I just think there's so many positives to VBAC. 
that really outweigh the possible complications. I'm convinced and I haven't even given birth yet. And have some- yeah. oh I mean, yeah, I'm so convinced. Like I'm a home birth midwife mm-hmm. and, and, and I'm convinced that this is appropriate for women to do at home. That's, um, I'm going to ca- um, overlay that statement with that's not what the RANSCOG guidelines say. That's certainly not in line with a lot of the, the guidelines that we follow. But that's when I look at um, the possible risk factors, it still makes sense. And there's great research on be back at home and the success rates and the safety. Uh, and if women are aware of that and, you know, the, the distance if there is a complication that there's a delay, then, you know, I think it's reasonable. And if and if saying that makes you a rebel, then I guess that's why you're the rebellious midwife. <laughs> yeah, I'm the rebellious midwife. I'm going to get in trouble one day. Um, you know, it takes some skill though. Like I wouldn't, not every midwife should be doing vaginal births after mm. at home. I certainly didn't do it early in my career. This has come from a level of experience and understanding and the fact that I live in an area that has hospitals close by. We have a good relationship that my clients are very well educated about this and actually have made the choice themselves. But I do offer it as an an opportunity for them. Can we talk a little bit more about the um the rupture because as we were saying before on the podcast that the word rupture itself has a lot of sort of negative associations to it even just hearing it it's like whoa rupture like volcano like (laughs) um what's been your experience with uh uterine ruptures yeah so yeah this is the thing that's usually frightens everybody because the word rupture sounds like it's explosive and dramatic so a uterine rupture is, you know, when you have a cesarean, they cut the lower part of your uterus and then they stitch it back up and, and you get scar tissue over there. It's it's pretty good and strong these days when they repair your uterus. They're usually repairing it to a quality where they expect it's going to be fine for a vaginal birth after cesarean. But occasionally approximately 1%, but less in some circumstances, more in others. Uh, That scar can open up during labour. And there's various degrees. So you could have a complete catastrophic rupture where the whole scar opens up, you know, and uh, the baby is out of the uterus. That's absolutely catastrophic. It's life-threatening for the baby and for the woman. That's super, super rare. So when you've got a rupture rate of, let's like just say 1%, a tiny proportion of that 1% are going to experience a complete uterine rupture. The rest are going to have partial uterine ruptures. And that means maybe what we call dehiscence. So it kind of maybe one part of the uterus, one part of the scar starts to open sort of like a little buttonhole. Maybe across the scar in multiple areas, there's some little openings and ruptures. The amazing thing is, is you can actually identify when this is likely happening. So when I'm at home with a woman having a VBAC, we listen to the baby's heart rate intensely. So with a handheld Doppler is what you'll have at home. Uh, In hospital, you would have a CTG on, which is constant fetal monitoring. So the whole labour 
you can see the baby's heart rate. If that baby's heart rate is normal, you're probably not having a uterine rupture. And if you are, it's minor. So there's a lot that you can tell from the baby's heart rate. Um, so with the with a few of my clients, we did have um, a situation where the heart rate started to change. And for me, that was my cue to transfer to hospital. I was like, okay, this is the very first sign that something is unusual here because the heart rate's unusual. Uh, so we have a low tolerance for transfer um, when women are having a VBAC. And I am, um, you know, the research tells us that approximately 30% of women who are planning to have vaginal birth at home will transfer to hospital. And that's because of the low tolerance to transfer. Um, and so there's signs. So the first is the baby's heart rate. Uterine rupture, it, it's uncomfortable. There's an unusual sensation. And then the other thing that happens is the contraction pattern changes and your your body recognises that something isn't right and it sort of goes, ooh, we probably shouldn't keep contracting because something's not right with our uterus. Uh, I had a client this year actually who did have a uterine rupture. Um, we were at home. I identified some signs and we transferred in and she continued to labour for about 12 hours and we could tell when we would check her cervix to see what was happening, if there was progress, there was one side that was just sort of thick and not really responding to the labour process. The other side, was it felt different. So it was like this asymmetrical situation on her cervix. And in hindsight, that was the side that had started to, to rupture. Um, and so the uterine muscle wasn't functioning as well as it should, which changed the way her cervix behaved. So there's these little signs that things could be happening. And so that's the time where you could act and intervene in a VBAC. Um, and so it, it usually a rupture doesn't take you by surprise. Um, um, because what we sort of tend to think is immediate, happening immediately, but it's not something like that. It's not. Occasionally. That occasionally, can, that, yeah. That's, that's the catastrophic end possibility. But possible that's more likely to happen if you be induced when, mm -hmm. when you're planning on being, having a VBAC. Uh, if you have an epidural, you can't feel what's happening in your body. So these more catastrophic ruptures are more likely because you can't, you're not aware of the earlier signs. Whereas if you're having a physiological labour and you're listening to the baby's heart rate and the woman has full sensation, she can start to tell you that something is not right mm -hmm. and you can act a lot sooner. Uh, so, yes, so so you can still listen on a CTG, but that only tells you about the baby's experience. That doesn't tell you what the mum's experiencing. Mm. Um, so, you know, with, if there's a V, if there's a rupture, sometimes there's pain over the scar in between contractions or the contraction pattern significantly changes. So with a, with a epidural, one side effect of an epidural is that the pattern of labour can significantly change. You can also get quite a significant uh, CTG like reading, the fetal heart reading that is synonymous with an epidural. So how do we know if it's the epidural that's causing that or if we're mm. currently experiencing a rupture? It could be passed off as, oh, yeah, that's what happens. 
when you put an epidural on, the pattern changes and the fetal heart rate changes and, you know, yeah, the contractions don't do what they normally do. So it can cloud a lot of that. So if, yeah, I think if you're having a VBAC, it's really valuable to actually be able to feel the sensation so that you can alert people to what's happening if there's going to be something going on. But most VBACs, if you're supported, the, the rates for a successful VBAC are almost higher than a normal vaginal birth rate um, in, in anywhere else. So where 38% of people are having a cesarean section now, that doesn't leave a massive proportion of women who are having normal vaginal births. And the cesarean, the VBAC rate, particularly if you're at home, can be as high as 85, 87, like even some some studies say in the 90s, 90%. So it's really, you've got a very, very good chance of having a successful VBAC in a supported mm. environment, almost higher than any other time in your childhood life. And given that, I think that would be a really nice sort of segue into a question that we had from somebody when we mentioned that we were going to be interviewing you. Um, they were saying that they wanted to have a VBAC, but they have fear around birth and how could they best prepare themselves mentally? What would your advice be in terms of, you know, where to look for that sort of research or in terms of how to get into that headspace to prepare for a VBAC? Yeah, Um Education can always just calm fears, I feel like, particularly in birth because firstly... Stats, stats keep me warm at night. <laughs> <laughs> you need stats, then that's where you, you know that's where you need to grow to relieve your fears, right? You're like, I need to know all the stats, mm. which is great to know that about yourself because if you say to your clinician, I'm really scared of this, I need to know what are the chances of this happening and what are the chances of that happening? Whereas somebody else might need to hear countless successful stories of women who have had a VBAC to mm -hmm. kind of know it's possible. Like there's all kinds of things that make us feel better and relieve fears. You know, for some reason I'm a lot less frightened when the house is tidy. Um, I feel mm -hmm. like I can rule the world because my house is in order. It's not OCD, but, you know, there is some stress cleaning that goes on in my house and I feel yeah. better. So that's okay. I'm, I'm cool with that. Um Dr. Hazel Keedle, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now to get the exact wording, but Birth After Caesarean is her book. Mm -hmm. And I would highly recommend it because she goes through a lot of unique things like vaginal birth after multiple caesarean sections, uh, VBAC after uh, with special scars. So not all caesarean scars are straightforward. Some of them are different. Mm -hmm. And she looks at a lot of the research around it just to relieve the fears that women are often given by their care providers. Yeah. So firstly, to alleviate fear, find a clinician who's on your side. So if you say to your clinician, I want to have a vaginal birth, and they go, amazing, how can I help you? Yes, that's in my skill set. I'm comfortable with that. Whereas if they say, oh, you know, yeah, let's try. Let's see how that goes. That's red flag. Mm. Expectations to prepare you for the possibility that this won't happen. Every woman who's having a vaginal birth after cesarean already knows that a repeat cesarean is possible. She does not need to be brought down a peg. Mm -hmm. She needs to be told, I'm here to support you on this journey in any single way that I can. And even if we end up in an 
section, it's going to be amazing for you because the outcome is not what causes trauma. It's the loss of control and autonomy over a situation. So I had a client, yeah, I had a client who wanted to have a vaginal birth after cesarean at home with me. Her first was a cesarean that she felt ultimately she did not need. And so she was having another go. She ended up going all the way past 42 weeks, like early labour for six or seven days, was exhausted. And we finally, she said, please, I, I want to go to the hospital. It's like, absolutely, well, let's go. We went to hospital. They sat and they listened to her and and they said, look, um, do you want to have a vaginal birth? She said, well, I do, but I've been in labour for like eight days. I'm so tired, um, you know, and, and she said, I want a cesarean section now. And they said, okay we we can do that for you but we've got this like it's going to be hours away and she's like please I you know and fortunately somebody came in who was really sympathetic and said we're gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna do this cesarean section for you and her reflection on the whole thing was that she was so grateful she was happy with how everything went she did not have her home birth she had a repeat cesarean section, but she said along the whole entire way, you gave me all the information. Yeah. You took me to the hospital when I wanted to go. You gave me all of that time, that seven days of early labor. She want, she needed to see what she could do mm. and come to the conclusion herself that it was time now for a repeat cesarean section. And that on was her, her own accord. Yeah. On her own accord. That was her decision. I said to her, if you want to keep laboring, we I can keep laboring with you. And of course, women, if if somebody says to them, actually, your baby's suffering because of what's happening right now, women will go, Well, that's a game changer. Mm. You know, most women would want a cesarean section. If you say, Yeah, you've been laboring for eight days, but now your baby's suffering for that. Uh you know, women would have a repeat cesarean section most of the time, but she needed to come to that her own. She hit her own limit. It wasn't it wasn't determined for her, and she was just so glad to be the one in control of all of those decisions. And so I think your next birth after cesarean section isn't always about getting the vaginal birth, but it's about having the decision-making control and all of your decisions being honoured and just someone to go with you and keep you safe while you work out what your body can do, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's well said, yeah. I think. Yeah. I think that's such a nice way to think about it and change the perception we have around birth because there is a lot of fear and misconceptions and concerns and I think if you can do what you can to feel good and strong and calm, no matter how you birth, it's going to set you up for the rest of your life. But potentially, like especially, I mean, early postpartum and, and the connection that you have with your baby. So I'm, I'm sure you've come across that in your research, which um, yeah, you've spent many years doing. Yeah. I mean, birth is always, we need to know that birth is always going to transform you. Like yeah. pregnancy, motherhood, trans, like there's no option except to be changed. 
And so the thing, one thing that you can do to set yourself up is, I mean, is an amazing birth experience where you feel in control, regardless of how the baby actually comes out. If it sets you up for a positive transformation, then that's, um, I don't want to say you've won because it's not like you've lost if, if mm. but there can be a positive or a negative transformation. And so it should be our job as care providers to facilitate a positive transformation for women, whether they have a cesarean or not, if they have a vaginal birth. It's always possible. The transformation is possible, but mm. it's about how you're treated, not specifically the events. Yeah, absolutely. And you're, um, so I guess if people wanted to find out more about you, where can they find you? Well, not, not your home address. <laughs> I mean, my husband, he's put me on Google Maps because <laughs> so if you drive past my house, it'll pop up Melanie the midwife. I'm like, if you're pregnant. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think I'm that famous that I'm going to get stalkers, but uh, where can they find me? So I'm on Instagram at Melanie the midwife and Facebook at Melanie the midwife. Also on YouTube, Melanie the Midwife, that one's still sort of, it, it's not bad. It's just not very current, but there's some good stuff on there. Uh, my website is www.melaniethemidwife.com. And you've got a podcast. And the podcast is The Great Birth Rebellion. We just, we're nearly at 600,000 downloads. Wow. I know. You better be having a party at one mil. <laughs> I can't even imagine getting to one million because I just can hear my voice ringing out over Australia and wherever else it's playing like a million hours. Can you imagine? Oh, wow. <laughs> million hours of Mel and B just <laughs> ringing out. So, yeah, that's doing pretty well. Um, that's where you can find me. Uh, and I will also be in Sydney in August at the Sofitel, yes. at the Convergence of Rebellious Midwives. Uh, so that's, that's in August. August 2000. And is that for midwives and, and student mid like people professions and professionals in the industry? It's for anyone who would love to learn more about pregnancy, birth, postpartum. The lineup is insane. So Beyonce. Uh, Beyonce. It'll <laughs> be Beyonce, Gaga, <laughs> and Queen Latifah. Um, <laughs> who have we got? We've got Hannah Darlin is coming. Dr. Stu Fishbane from the US, who is the breach expert, he's actually running two workshops which are already sold out. Um, we've got Dr. Kirsten Small, Rhea Dempsey, Jane Hardwick-Collings, myself, and B, and Liz Newham. Who else? Oh, gosh, I'm looking through the list. Hazel Keedle will be there. Mm -hmm. well, and you'll be speaking? Up. I'll be speaking yeah. on how to change the system. And I think I heard you say on your recent podcast that um, for there is an option about payment plans as well. So if people are interested, um, you do offer that too. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And also all the information, melaniethemidwife.com on that. Um, that yeah. sounds fun. Good on you. Thank <laughs> you so much for joining us today, Mel. It's been a really interesting oh, chat so and, um, yeah, a real conversation starter about feedbacks. Yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you liked it, leave us a review and follow us on socials. We'd love to hear from you.